God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus's ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with his people in one place at one time. But early on in Acts, Pentecost occurs and God's promised Holy Spirit is unleashed in power, filling those who would receive and overflowing to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people, and we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Well, good morning. I uh, hope that was better online. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Just want to make sure you're awake. Glad that you're here with us today. Hey, before we get into the sermon, I want to take just a minute to introduce a couple of guys uh, to you, uh, guys who are new on our staff, and we're very excited about having them as a part of our team. They're not strangers to Walken County at all. Uh, we have Uriah and Dustin, and Uriah, uh, Uriah Garay, not Gary, it's Garay. Uh, Uriah Garay is our, our new next-gen pastor. He oversees the ministries from middle school, The Edge, and Encounter, and The Table all through uh, the young adults. And, and uh, Dustin Reimer is uh, specific with our high school. He's our new high school director. Very excited to have both of these guys join us for our next generation team. And, um, and just excited for you to get to know them, not only today, but throughout this week and some things that are coming up. We're not only excited about having them here, but they also have families. And so we're excited about that. Uriah and his wife, Janella, have five children, and they are competing with Pastor Jeff. So we'll see how they, they've got... Got some catch-up to do with Pastor Jeff, but, but his, uh, his kids range from the seventh grade to one, yep. and uh, let's see if I get this right, Layla and Nevaeh and Hezekiah and Azaria and Tori, all right, in that order, all right, and then Dustin and his wife Jessica have two uh, little boys, they're both under three, and there's Daniel and Luke, but we're just so excited to have these guys and their families as a part. <laughs> our children's ministry just expanded. Um, <laughs> a part of our church, but I want to give them just a chance to say hi, Uriah. Absolutely, yeah. I just want to say I'm so excited to get to be part of this community. Uh, my my family and I were really excited to be back in Bellingham, and I just can't wait to see what God does here, and just to find what He's doing and partner with that. And so. I can't wait to meet everybody. I'm going to have hundreds of names to learn, so be patient with me. I have the memory of a goldfish when it comes to names sometimes. But um, we have actually a special event where we want to meet as many people as possible, students and young adults especially. We have an event next Sunday evening, 6 p.m. We're going to do food trucks, free food for students, and we would love to meet parents and students. So come to that next Sunday at 6 p.m. We'd love to meet you. 
Yeah, again, hello. My name is Dustin. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, this week has been kind of a whirlwind of learning uh, new names and seeing people for the first time. Uh, last night at the service, meeting a bunch of people. I'm so excited to be here. And again, um, come to this event. This is next gen. This is uh, middle school, high school, young adults. Uh, we want to just connect with you. I just want to get to know you. There's no, there's no weirdness happening. Just come have some awesome food. Uh, we're going to try to get some music going, and we're just going to get to know you. We're just going to try to connect. So uh, put that in your calendars, and also uh, Uriah and myself, after the service, we will be in the common area, and come say hi to us. Uh, we want to know you. There's a lot of you, and there's only a couple of us, but we want to talk to you. We want to get to know with you and to connect with you. So looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, you. great. Yeah. Another opportunity is this Wednesday night, you know, here in Bellingham, we have our baptism and barbecue, and the weather's going to be fantastic for that. Uh, they'll both be here uh, for that, so join us this Wednesday night, and then uh, for students and families uh, a week from tonight. I would ask that you would be not only getting to know these guys, but praying for them and their families as they transition onto our staff, uh, into our community here, and what God has for them. And I wonder, would you join me right now uh, in the room, and those of you worshiping with us online, as we pray for them now. Father, we thank you so much for Uriah and for Dustin. We thank you for their love for you, their love for students, uh, your calling on their life for ministry. And so, Father, we just pray right now that your spirit would surround them and their families. I pray that you would be with these guys in their walk with you, that they would just thrive in, in walking in step with your spirit and connecting Jesus with you. I pray that you'd be with them as husbands, that they would love their wives as Christ loved the church. I pray that you'd be with them as fathers, that they would have patience and grace to set the example and to love their children. And I pray that you'd be with them as ministers of the gospel, of, of taking the truth of the kingdom of God to students. And I pray that you would just bless them in that. And that our next generation, God, we just think of the times throughout Scripture and history that you've used young people, teenagers, uh, people in their 20s to advance your kingdom. We pray that that would continue to happen here in Whatcom County. So we just pray that they would know our support, that we would be lifting them up in prayer, and that you would be doing an incredible thing through their lives in ministry. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's continue to, to pray for them and thank them for being here with us this morning. That means clap. There you go. All right. Well, it is very good to have you here today, um, and because there's a 10 o'clock Seahawk game, uh, some of you are here for the first time at a 9 o'clock service, so we're glad that you're here, and uh, last night's service was very full too, so that's 11 o'clock service, there'll be three of us, those two guys and me. Anyway, uh, I want to, as, as we get in here, I want to introduce you to someone who is very familiar and yet unknown to you. I know that sounds really weird. Very, one of probably the most familiar unknown people in your world. If I showed you his face, if I showed you a picture of his face, you would not recognize it. I, I can't imagine any of you would. If I told you his name, which I will here in a second, I don't think there would be any or very many who would recognize the name. His name is Ed Valenti. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. But he's very familiar to you in his work because Ed Valenti is one of the founding fathers of infomercials on television. He and his partners created Ginsu knives. They slice, they dice, they make julienne fries. They do it all. And you know about Ginsu knives. And he has, he has created phrases that have just become so common in our world, in our vernacular, and, in, and especially in infomercials. He is the one that came up with the phrase, 
This is a limited time offer, so call now. That's his phrase. He was one that made that up. He was the one who came up with this phrase, now how much would you pay? That's him. Ed did this. But probably the one he's known for more than anything is, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. And I have stolen that phrase from him for the title of this sermon, but wait, there's more. And that whole idea of, but wait, there's more, it's, it's this, you know, suspend your judgment. Don't make your decision yet. Hang in there because it's going to continue to get better. You won't even imagine. If you thought it was good, just wait, it's more. But the reality is, most of us in life, not in infomercials, but in life, we have a weight problem. I'm not talking about your poundage. That's your deal. But we don't like to wait. And if someone says, but wait, we don't want to wait. And it doesn't matter if it's at a traffic light. It doesn't matter if it's at a restaurant. It doesn't matter if it's at a doctor's office. It doesn't matter if Amazon Prime can't get it here by tomorrow. We don't like to wait. And sometimes it's not just an inconvenience thing and a frustration of we got to get going faster. Sometimes it's a deep-seated, painful we don't like to wait. It's hard to wait. The single person that's waiting for that significant person to spend the rest of their life with. The couple that's waiting to someday have their family started with a child. The worker who's waiting for, for a meaningful career, not just a job. The depressed person who's waiting for that day when they wake up and they're actually excited for a new day. That elderly person in the home waiting to die. Waiting for a breakthrough in life, waiting for an answer to prayer, waiting for some justice, waiting for equality. We don't like to wait. And in those times when we're waiting in these deep-seated, heavy times of waiting, the last thing we want to hear is, but wait, there's more. When we're in those kind of waiting rooms, we begin to ask questions like, God, are you even aware? Do you even care? Do you hear my prayers do you see what's going on? Can you do anything? Don't you want to do something? And today, as we continue in our series in the book of Acts, we're going to join the Apostle Paul in a waiting room of his own where he may have been asking some of those questions. And my prayer is this, that as we look at his, his waiting room, that we can learn some things that will allow us to be able to wait well in our lives. So we've been in this series in the book of Acts since, since June. We'll continue on for another two or three weeks. And today I'm going to be covering the end of chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25, and chapter 26. Are you ready? As is often the case, I'm going to skip over a lot of stuff. So I hope that you've been reading along with us. Or if not, I hope that you'll read these chapters on your own after our time together. If you were here last week, you know that Pastor Kip talked about Paul giving his testimony, challenged us to put together our testimony but Paul had gone to Jerusalem. After his third missionary journey, he goes to Jerusalem. He gives this offering to help out these people who are struggling financially, and he goes to the temple. He gets arrested. That's where, where we left off in the story. And what happens is while he's arrested, there are some of these Jewish leaders that absolutely hate what Paul is teaching. He, they hate this gospel, this, this message of Jesus, that, that he's the Messiah, that he's the resurrected one. And they make a covenant that they are going to eliminate Paul. In fact, there's 40 of these guys, and they're putting together a plan. They're going to ambush, and they make a covenant. They're so serious about this. They go to the Jewish leaders and say, the 40 of us, we will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. 
So they put someone in the book depository over by the grassy knoll. They've got all this stuff planned out. They're going to eliminate him. Word of this gets out. Now, we've talked about Paul. We've talked about his parents. We never really talk about his sister. Most people don't. Paul had a sister, and she had a son, Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew hears this plot against Uncle Paul, or for him it was probably Uncle Saul. That's what he grew up calling him. And so he goes to Paul, and he says, listen, here's what's happening. There are these guys, and they're going to kill you. And they say, take him to the commander. They take him to the commander. He tells a story. That's where we pick up. Acts chapter 23, this is what the commander says. He, the commander, called two of his centurions. Remember, a centurion has 100 men under him. So a guy, two guys who each have 100 men under him. Calls two of his centurions and orders them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Now, first of all, you say, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of people to transport one prisoner. So they're like, we're making very sure, you know, there, there's hundreds of guys and horses and spearmen. They're all going to take him to Caesarea. If you've ever been, been with us, you remember there are two different Caesareas. Caesarea Philippi up to the north and Caesarea Maritima, which we talked about five weeks ago, I believe, when we were in Acts chapter 10. Caesarea Maritima, where they're going to go, was this port city that Herod the Great built, and it was Rome away from Rome. It was spectacular with the Hippodrome, with the theater, with the temples, with this man-made deep water port that was so far ahead of its time, and Herod's spectacular summer palace right on the Mediterranean Sea. This is where Peter had the vision when he's in Joppa. The sheet comes down. Go to see Cornelius. He goes up to Cornelius. If you were with us, you know. That's back to Caesarea. It's about 60 or 70 miles from Jerusalem. They're taking Paul there to be under King uh, Governor Felix. Now, Felix is not born into royalty or into political power. Felix originally was a slave but he had become a freedman, and over the years had worked his way up to now he's a governor. And he wasn't necessarily a good one. In fact, the Roman uh, historian Tacitus, I, I love his name, Publius Cornelius Tacitus. It makes Bob Marvel sound pretty plain. But Publius Cornelius Tacitus said this about Felix, that he exercises the, the power of a king with the mind of a slave. He's got all this power, but he's got this chip on his shoulder, and he shows it. And he made him a poor leader. That's why eventually he'll get kicked out of his position. But they send Paul off to Felix to Caesarea. So they get there, and, and Felix hears about this. He says, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now Paul is in the waiting room. Now he has to wait. I will say this, however. If you have to be in a waiting room... Herod's palace is not a bad place to be. Spectacular, opulent setting right there in the Mediterranean Sea. But he's in the waiting room nonetheless. Being on trial, one day passes, two days pass, three days, four days. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. And Paul now in the waiting room is brought to trial, but he begins to understand the truth that the wheels of justice turn very, very slow. Even more so when your lawyer's root name is Turtle. <laughs> very, very slow. So he goes on trial, 
And those who are against him say, hey, this guy is a pest. He causes disruptions everywhere he goes. There's been riots, and he's desecrated the temple. They go through this whole thing, and they lay it all out. You can read this on your own. This is in chapter 24. And then Paul's given the opportunity to give his defense. He represents himself. He stands up and says, okay, hold on a second. Let me just say, I've been out of the country for a few years. About 12 days ago, I came back. So I don't even have the time to do all the things that they said I've done. Yes, I did come back. I brought an offering for those who were struggling, and I went to the temple. That is true. But I didn't cause a problem in the temple. I didn't desecrate the temple. And if they're talking about that riot in Ephesus, then they ought to bring some people in from Asia who were actually there who could testify against me, but they don't have any of those there. And if they're talking about being a disruption, I did raise my voice in the Sanhedrin, but it was about the resurrection of Jesus. So if I'm on trial today, it's because there's a man who's resurrected. That's it. The defense rests. Case closed. They don't have proof. They don't have witnesses. They don't have a case. It should have been a done deal. Paul should have been released right then and there. Felix hears all this, and then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, followers of Jesus, he adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he says, I will decide your case. Paul goes back into the waiting room. Little spoiler alert, Felix never decides the case. It was a slam dunk, but he never comes to a verdict. But Paul's in the waiting room, waiting again and again. But it's not that Felix doesn't hear from him. In fact, he does. It goes on. It says this. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, another little side note about Felix. He was a slave who becomes a governor. Drusilla, Drusilla Deville, as I refer to her, is his third wife. Here's an interesting little side note just for the, the historians. Felix's first wife was the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Maybe you're familiar with that from history. His third wife, Drusilla, was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Her grandfather had built this city. Not on rock and roll, but in Caesarea. He had built, this was his dream. Was, his, her grandpa built this city. And... It's Felix's third wife. At this point, Drusilla's, and I mean this in a negative way, is a bit of a trophy wife. She's 20 years old. It's his third wife. I'm guaranteeing he's not 23. So he's got this young little thing with him, and they bring Paul in to hear about Jesus and faith in Christ. And so Paul tells him, goes on, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Why? Felix is not known for righteousness, self-control, and is afraid of the judgment to come. What started off as personal information, or as, as general information, becomes a personal conviction, and Felix doesn't like it. He says, this is enough. That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Back in the waiting room he goes. But it's not the only time. Because actually Felix sends for him frequently. It says at the same time when, that he was, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe. Paul had talked about this offering. He knew he had access to resources. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Not just once, not just twice, but over time. And all this time, he never declares a verdict on this case. The trial's not even spoken of. And I wonder, I wonder if during this season, during this time, if Paul asked the age-old question for all of us in the waiting room, how long, how long? 
I mean, how long is the question that we ask? That's your blank, by the way. How long? How long is the question that kids in the back seat on a road trip ask their parents? How long? How long is the question that the hungry teenager says before dinner? How long? How long is the question we ask when we're praying and we wonder, God, do you answer? How long is the question that even David, the psalmist, said in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And I wonder, as Paul's sitting there in the waiting room, I wonder if he says, how long? How long? Some of you are old enough to remember a band called Credence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> You're showing your age. There, uh, as am I. There was a song that they sang called, and no disregard for anyone watching from Central California. It was called Lodi. The song was Lodi. And in this song, John Fogarty, he sings about all these dreams, all these plans, all these things he's going to do. And then there's this tagline at the end of each verse, Oh, Lord, stuck in Lodi again. I wanted to do this, but here I am stuck in Lodi again. And here's Paul, and he's got all these dreams, he's got all these plans, he's got this mission in mind, he's got this calling, and he's saying, oh, Lord, stuck in Lodi again. Here I am. How long, oh, Lord, how long? He was supposed to have this trial. It was supposed to be a slam dunk. No verdict. How long? Well, I'll tell you how long. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. He could have declared the verdict on his way out. For two years, Paul's been sitting there waiting for the verdict of a, trail, a trial that had happened that was a clear-cut case. And he's not just succeeded. Felix is relieved of his duties there in Caesarea. And if it weren't for his brother Paulus, he would have probably been executed. But his brother had a lot of influence and sway. And now... There's a new guy, Festus. He doesn't know the history. Felix on his way out, the, part of the reason was because of an uprising with some, the way he ruled as, a, as the power of a king with the mind of a slave caused a lot of bloodshed with Jewish people. And so on his way out, he's trying to make amends. And he knows that they don't want Paul released, so he leads Paul in prison. Festus doesn't know any of this. This is all brand new. We're going to have to go through the whole thing, start all over again. The, tor the, the, the trial was done. It's been two years. We've been waiting, and now we've got a new guy. Now, it's like we're back to square one in the waiting room. And it's the last place that Paul wants to be. I mean, if you were with us a few weeks ago when he was in Ephesus, when he was in Ephesus, he writes a letter, and, and this is what he says in this letter. Um, after all this happened, Paul, Paul decided, to go, he decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He was going to go to Jerusalem, drop off the offering, worship, and then head to Rome. That was his plan. That was his desire. That was not only his plan and his desire, that was God's plan. Because when he was in Jerusalem, you can read this, I think, in chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus came to him and said, take courage. You will testify about me in Rome just as you have testified about me here in Jerusalem. So Jesus himself had said, Paul, I need you to go to Rome. You are going to go to Rome. That is not only Paul's desire, that is God's will. And there he is, stuck in Lodi again not even able to fulfill what Jesus himself said he was supposed to do. 
If you ask Paul, how's it going here in the waiting room? You know, he might say, well, you know, under the circumstances, I suppose. You know, I don't think Paul would say that. We would maybe. And I, listen to me. I don't want to give you a Christian cliche in this next one, okay, of what I'm going to say. I, I, hear me all the way out. Because the last thing you need when you're in the waiting room is a Christian cliche. Too blessed to be stressed. Yeah. Okay. What I wonder is this. When we're in the waiting room, are we living under the circumstances or in Christ? We're living under the circumstances or in Christ. Paul never denies the reality of the circumstance. He never denies the reality of the waiting room, the frustration of the waiting room, the, the, the difficulties of the way. He never, he never denies it. He lives with an understanding of the circumstance, but he doesn't live under the circumstance. He lives in Christ, which allows him to live above the circumstances. The circumstances don't change, but he's completely different because he's not living under the circumstances. One of the most famous lines that Paul wrote is at the end of a passage that he, he talks about this in, in a, the letter to, to the Philippian church. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. We just sang about that in that song, Jira, that I, I'm content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And here's his phrase, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I live in Christ so that in my circumstances, I live above my circumstances because my life is who I am in Christ, not what I am in life, and not what I face, and not what my circumstances are. So he's back in the waiting room, starting back again with the trial. And two years have passed. You would think the dust had settled, but the Jewish guys are still just as angry. They haven't eaten or drinking for two years. They're still planning to kill him. They still bring the serious charges against him. And finally, Paul says, listen, I haven't done anything. If I've done something deserving of death, kill me. I'm good with that. But I haven't. Don't turn me over to them. I appeal as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. To which Festus is probably going, whew, well that takes it a little bit off of my plate. I don't have to make the decision on this one. He says, okay, you appeal to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Great. And Festus says this. And Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision. I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar back in the waiting room again. I don't know when I'm going to be able to go appeal my case before Caesar. So he's back in the waiting room in Caesarea. And a few days later, it says, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived from Caesarea uh, arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Little bit of historical background. King Agrippa, his grandfather was Herod the Great, which means King Agrippa has a sister named Drusilla. King Agrippa also has a sister named Bernice. Bernice was married to her uncle. Her father gave her to his brother when she was young, which is really weird and sick. After he died, her brother gave her to the king of Cilicia, and then she left him. And according to 
Flavius Josephus, King Agrippa and his queen slash sister had an incestuous relationship. Sick yet again. And he's the king of an area north of the Sea of Galilee, all up in northern Israel. So in his kingdom would be the town of Capernaum, Bethsaida, where most of Jesus' disciples came from, where most of Jesus' ministry took place. And his capital was up in Caesarea Philippi, now called Banias. And Festus says, could you guys help me out with this? Here's the deal with this guy, Paul. And I'm going to send him to Caesar, but I have to give a letter to say why I'm sending him, and I can't figure out. There's nothing. He, he hasn't done anything wrong, nothing deserving death. So Agrippa hears this, and, and Bernice hears this. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Back in the waiting room. We're waiting again, and now we've got a new set of people that need to hear this case. What happens for us sometimes when we're in the waiting room, and I wonder if this happened with Paul, is that we begin to think we're waiting on the will of God. Paul wants to be in Rome. We're waiting. We're, I'm here now until this happens, then I'll be at the will of God. And sometimes we have this attitude, okay, God, I'll be in the waiting room, but I'm going to keep reminding you I'm waiting still. Let me illustrate this. Have you ever been in your car at a, at a crosswalk at a stop site, and a pedestrian comes up and pushes this little button, and there's a little voice that says, wait. Now, I'm not saying any of you would ever do this, but most of the pedestrians will stand there for about two seconds, and then they push it again. And again, I know you don't, you would never do this. And again, and again, and again, and again, like, um, yes, yeah, as if the more times you push it, it's going to speed up the traffic lights. And I think sometimes we do that with God. Okay, I'm here, God, I'm here. I'm God. God, I'm here, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And we just keep pushing like we're going to speed up God's timeline. What if, what if, th this is revolutionary. What if we're not waiting on the will of God? And what if, what if waiting is the will of God? What if God, in his providential wisdom, in his divine omniscience, is orchestrating and ordaining the waiting. And what if the waiting room is not waiting in spite of God's will? What if we're waiting in line with God's will? 25 years earlier, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, and he struck with that light, and the word goes to Ananias to go in and to lay his hands on, to, to, to fill him with the Holy Spirit and have him receive his sight, the word of the Lord came to Ananias and said this. This is 25 years earlier. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. 25 years later, this will of God is still being fulfilled. So the next day, Agrippa, King Agrippa, and Bernice, his queen, sister, girlfriend, came with great pomp. <laughs> I picture big feathery boas, <laughs> trumpets, pigeons being let loose, people on horses. <laughs> it says, oh, here they come, the king and the queen, they're here. And they entered the audience room 
with the high-ranking officers. So you've got these Roman military leaders and the leading men of the city. You've got these political leaders. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. No feathers. No pigeons being let loose. No trumpets. Comes in and chains. Two years he's been in the waiting room. And here he is, standing before Festus, King Agrippa, Queen Bernice, Roman leaders in the military, political leaders, this audience that he gets to stand before. And for two years in this waiting room, he's been with guards. Imagine with me, the Apostle Paul with guards 24-7. Do you think by chance Paul created relationships, engaged with them, prayed for them, learned their families' names, shared his testimony, prayed with them, told them about Jesus, converted them to Christianity, discipled them? Do you think just maybe he has an impact because later he would say all the praetoriums send their greetings? Why? He's converted them. For two years, he's been able to encourage the church that started there with Cornelius and his family to disciple them, to encourage them, to, to set up leadership, to, to teach them. For two years, for two years, he was able to frequently speak with Felix and, and, um, and Drusilla and to tell them about the gospel and, and to, to warn them about their lifestyle and to, and to present the truth of God's grace. And now, two years later, here he is with Festus and with Agrippa and Bernice and all these Roman officers and all these uh, political leaders, and here he is with all of them. Maybe, just maybe, he's not waiting on the will of God. Maybe waiting is the will of God. And all of a sudden, he's seeing God's work in the waiting room. What God has been doing all along. That maybe this isn't against God's plan. This was God's plan because of the impact that would happen in those two years. And so he has this audience and he begins to tell his story. And this is the beautiful thing because this time it's not a trial. This time it's a sermon that, that they've invited him to share. And you can read it, uh, chapter 26. He begins to tell his story, his background, his conversion, his conversation with Christ. He points to Moses and to the prophets and how all of them point, and it just makes sense, logical sense, how that's all fulfilled and how the Messiah must come, must suffer, and be res resurrected from the dead. And in the middle of it all, Festus interrupts him. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. He recognizes, Paul, you are brilliant, but you're too smart for your own good. You've gone crazy. He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Think about it. It makes sense. Scripture, but the king is familiar with these things. He looks at Agrippa. The king's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. Why? Because his kingdom is where Capernaum is, where Jesus did his ministry. It's where the church started, there's no doubt that the king is very familiar with the story of Jesus and his followers because it was not done in a corner. Agrippa, you see this. 
You know, Agrippa gets this. He understands. He's familiar with this. It goes on. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? Now who's on trial? Do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa's in a bad situation. Because if he says, yes, I do, he looks really bad to Festus. Because Festus is saying, Paul, you're crazy. If he says, no, I don't, then he no longer has good standing with the Jewish people that he's overseeing. He doesn't have a good answer at all. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And I can just imagine this room filled with all these dignitaries, the, the military leaders, the political leaders, and there's this, this exchange. They all look at when, when Paul's talking, they look to him. When Festus interrupts, they look to him. When Paul counters, they look to him, and he talks about Agrippa. They look to Agrippa, and Agrippa says, you're going to be a Christian. It's just kind of, it's like ping pong match. It just, and now it's on Paul. And I wonder if in that moment, Paul just pauses, and he looks. Here's Festus, brand new in his position as governor. King Agrippa and his sister bride, Bernice. All these military leaders, all these government leaders, and it just strikes him. Wow. God has been orchestrating this moment for years. And his response, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. I want every single one of you to know the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ. I want you to know the freedom of having your sins forgiven. I want you to know the truth. I want you to know the life that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I want that for all of you. And maybe at that moment he says, it all makes sense now. Why Felix never came down with a verdict, that wasn't his decision. God was working in all this. He's He's sovereign. That, that was all leading up for such a time as this. But wait, there is more. You know, we sang that song today. Even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. When we're in the waiting room, God continues his work. And maybe the waiting room is actually a part of his will, of what he wants to do through you. And maybe it's not just what he wants to do through you, but what he wants to do to you and within you. Ben Patterson said this, what God does in us while we wait is as important as what it is we are waiting for. Now, most of us don't like to hear this, but what God does in our lives when we're in the waiting room, what he transforms us, when he's teaching us, as he's refining us, as he's maturing us, is as important as what it is that we're waiting for. And I wonder, in those times, what will be our attitude regarding the waiting room? John Ortberg asked this question. 
Well, I trust that God has a good reason for saying, wait. And it's living with a confident trust. Living with a confident trust. I trust that God is good. I trust that he is sovereign. I trust that he knows. I trust that he sees. I trust that he cares. I trust that he hears my prayers. I trust that he's at work. I trust that he's orchestrating things for his will, for my good. I trust. Orberg goes on and he says, Waiting on the Lord is the continual daily decision to say, I will trust you and I will obey you. Waiting on the Lord is a confident, disciplined, expectant, active, and sometimes painful clinging to God. A few years ago, I challenged us as a congregation to memorize these words out of Psalm 33. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Lewis Smead said, waiting is the hardest work of hope. But as we wait to recognize God is still at work and waiting is the will of God and what he's doing in us and what he will do through us can shape and change everything and we may not see it until later we may not see it until it's in the rearview mirror we may not see it or understand it until we're in eternity I grew up hearing my dad sing farther along we'll understand farther along we'll know all about it farther along we'll understand why maybe if we had that attitude we could wait well. Side note, what Paul's passion and desire, what Paul's calling, what Paul's mission, what God's will was for him when he said this, I must visit Rome also. God orchestrated all of it and provided an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome on the government's bill. Now, granted, there was a shipwreck and a snake bite and a few things. We'll cover that next week. But it happened. And I wonder, I'll close with this, I wonder if in the midst of all this, somewhere Paul says, you know, I wrote a letter to that church in Rome, and I made a statement that I wasn't really sure about, but it's actually proved to be true. And Paul wrote these words, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Even in the waiting room, God is at work. Listen, some of you know this from experience. You've been in the waiting room. If you've never been in the waiting room, you will. And some of you are in the waiting room right now. And I pray that in your waiting you will trust a God who loves you, who knows, who is working and bringing about his will. That you would recognize, God, you can be doing your will in my life and in this situation right now. I can live above these circumstances in Christ and trust that you're going to bring it all together for your purposes. Live in that confidence.